The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Can you hear okay? It's okay? Good. So it's nice to be here with all of you this morning on a Tuesday morning. I'm impressed that you come out on a Tuesday morning. (laughs) Is anyone new to the group? No. You are new? Welcome. 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 IMC is a nice place, so please feel welcome to come here. Take advantage of all the different things that we do at this center. The normal teacher... uh, for the Duke folks uh, on a Tuesday morning is Andrea Fellow, but she's teaching a retreat out in Barry, Massachusetts. So I'll be teaching for the next couple of weeks here. So is anybody cold in here besides me? It's really, it feels cold in here. Can we, can we turn the heat up a little? You're what? I work from two to ten, so don't be too impressed. Okay, all right. Thank you for turning that heat up. So uh, this morning I want to uh, talk about um, the changing nature of experience. And um, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to call this talk Catching a Glimpse of the Bigger Picture. That way we don't have to figure it out afterwards. So um, you've all probably notice that everything in life is subject to change. Everything is changing all the time. It's pretty obvious. But when we stop and we pause, we step back, we have a look at what's going on, this is really how we begin to check in and have a clue of a or get a glimpse of the bigger picture. And when we do that, we notice that um, there's always space surrounding experience. There's always a little bit of space when we just take time to stop and pause and notice. Notice at the beginning of a breath, there's a space in in between the in-breath and the out-breath, there's a space. There's space surrounding things when we stop and take a look at it. And um, in this space, it's possible to discover a kind of stillness or a quietness or even peace, when, when people are practicing or meditating for a long time on a retreat or something, it's a little bit easier to, to, to get to that space in meditation. But even in our daily life, we can notice that when we just stop and pause 
just for a moment, when we interrupt the flow of the energy that propels us from one thing to the next, there's a moment, there's a respite, a moment of, of just being quiet with ourselves. And that allows us to, to rest, to just know um, that there is some place of refuge that's not just in this swirl of activity. So, as normal, ordinary people, whenever we get sick or we're injured in some way or disappointed in some way, um, we, we see this situation as a problem. Most of us do. And the natural tendency that we have is to want to fix the problem to want to get rid of it, to push it away. But um, if this doesn't work, and unless you're different than me, it mostly doesn't, we experience um, naturally a kind of distress, uh, maybe even anger, maybe fear. We might have a tendency towards depression, so we might get a little bit depressed. So we find ourselves constantly looking for um, pleasant experiences, pleasant feelings to try to antidote or override the things that we find um, painful. Or uh, let's be honest, even just mildly unpleasant. We don't like to be with unpleasant experiences. Most of us don't. And um, because we want to avoid even the slightest unpleasant experience, uh, we chase after, we pursue, and we cling to the things that seem to be giving us pleasure, that are pleasant. So this kind of reactivity is how and why we experience mental suffering. We want pleasant, and we don't want unpleasant. Okay. So just like you and just like me, the Buddha, I always feel sort of funny when I talk about the Buddha as though I knew him, but uh, the Buddha experienced uh, sickness, experienced illness, he experienced injury, and sometimes he experienced um, severe um, racking back pain, we're told. So as he aged nearing the end of his life, <clears throat> this pain became more, this pain was chronic, and it became more and more difficult. The Buddha also took medicine, and when he was sick, he had his, his monks or his attendant do teaching for him while he rested. And um, it's quite likely that he probably had a doctor, okay? just like you and just like me. So he did what he could do to relieve his physical pain and discomfort and to take care of his body. In this way, he wasn't any different than any of us. 
But unlike us, unlike most of us at least, the Buddha didn't suffer mentally because of this physical situation, because of his pain or his unpleasantness. Now, <clears throat> when I say that, I realize that <laughs> I'm setting a high bar and I'm not meaning to. All I'm doing is making a declaration. We have pain. He had pain. We have to take care of ourselves when we're sick. He had to take care of himself when we're sick. <clears throat> He did not suffer mental pain. Most of us still do. That's just a statement. Okay. Over time, as we practice, um, meditating, and as we bring the Dhamma more and more into our life, as we practice with the precepts and establishing a quality of integrity and, and virtue in our lives, um, we begin to um, quietly and slowly cultivate um, deeper and deeper access to uh, mindfulness. And we eventually might get to a place where we can establish um, uh, and recognize a state where there's a kind of calmness that uh, feels stable, where the mind begins to quiet down, and then the experience um, is one of uh, being calm, but it's a, it's a quality of stability. Um, uh, and this, is, this quality, when, when we can reach it, and, and sometimes we can get, get it in our meditation, but sometimes just in our daily life, just with our practice, we practiced en enough, and we become present enough and stable enough with ourselves that we're checking, we can check in with ourselves to see what's actually going on. And we become stable enough to actually bear witness to the discomfort and changes in our bodies without flinching or abandoning ourselves. Now, it's not just physical things, but psychological kinds of things that I'm talking about as well. And we can see that feelings are simply feelings. Thoughts are simply thoughts. And that our attitudes and our perceptions, are, I should say, and that our perceptions are affected by our attitudes and our habits of mind. And these, in turn, are directly influenced by these qualities of wanting not wanting or not knowing what's actually going on, greed, aversion, or delusion. So, so when we're faced with something or when we encounter something that we experience as difficult or unpleasant, all this is swirling around in us. This was not swirling around in the Buddha. This is why the Buddha did not have mental suffering. And this is... This is the roots of mental suffering. So when we can directly know and see suffering in our mental states, we can begin to choose not to let these mental states invade our mind, take up residence in our mind, <clears throat> 
and become entrenched mental default habits. So <clears throat> if you just think about your normal day-to-day -day experience and you find uh, you can see that certain things trigger you and set you off and then you react in a certain way and every time you're triggered by something that's similar and you react in the same way it's like you've gone to the gym and you're building a muscle right? Have you ever noticed this? So something comes up Someone says something and it just rubs you the wrong way and you react with anger or you react with hurt feelings or you withdraw in some way or you know, whatever, fill in the blank. But, <clears throat> but a trigger happens and then we, we find that we just fall into the same patterns over and over again. And every time we do, it's as though in our brains we're, we've, we're building a muscle, this muscle of reactivity. This is what most people do most of their lives. But when you begin to practice in a, with cultivating some sort of mental discipline, when you begin to practice um, developing um, some degree, some actual experience of mindfulness and you begin to see uh, what's happening. You begin to see that there are other ways that you can deal with the triggers that um, are just part and parcel of most people's everyday life. So <clears throat> there are all sorts of practices that are given to work with mindfulness is um, the one that we work with mainly in in this tradition. But I want to say that um, <clears throat> the practices of the heart, the heart quality practices, the Brahma Viharas, the practice of loving kindness, the practice of compassion, the practice of mudita or sympathetic, empathetic joy and equanimity. Um, these practices um, are able, we're able to, to deepen these practices through mindfulness. So I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. But, but when we're able to cultivate these practices, um, we can actually use them in order to meet the triggers in our lives, in order to meet the things that are difficult. And we can hold all the feelings that are arising in us in a with a quality of kindness then. We can meet our experience like a friend would meet us rather than um, beating ourselves up over and over again. So... <clears throat> So with the quality of compassion, um, some of you know that I, I teach the compassion program down at Stanford, but <clears throat> with the quality of compassion, <clears throat> compassion arises when we recognize suffering. That's, and compassion is a response to suffering. And suffering 
is a loaded word for many of us because we hear suffering and we think chronic racking back pain or the death of a loved one or some major catastrophe in our life, you see? And that's definitely suffering. But suffering is the whole gamut of experience that's other than the way that we would like it to be. That's a very simple way to think about suffering. Suffering is any moment in time when things are other than the way you want them to be. So if you were coming over here this morning and you were trying to arrive by 9.30 and you got stuck in traffic, why do I hit every red light? That's a moment of suffering. See, that's what I'm talking about by suffering. Suffering is when you've been in a relationship for a long time and you wonder where the love went. Suffering is when it rains and you remember that you didn't fix the leak in the summertime. And it's going to drip into your house. Suffering is when you want chocolate ice cream for dessert and there's only vanilla. So suffering is this whole range of experience. And... It's with mindfulness that we recognize what <clears throat> what's happening, but we can hold it with these heart qualities. You see, it's one thing to know um, <clears throat> uh, it's it's one thing t- to recognize suffering with mindfulness. So. And I want to describe uh, or define mindfulness here for you so that you, you know how I'm talking about this. Mindfulness is, um, can be seen in a couple of different ways. And a very uh, easy way to understand it is <clears throat> it's that quality of, um, it's a mirror-like reflective quality of awareness. So if you were to stand in front of a mirror, if this was a mirror, the mirror would simply reflect what was in front of it, right? That's all the mirror does. The mirror doesn't comment on the reflection. It doesn't um, think about it. It doesn't wonder why it looks a certain way. It's just, it just reflects back the image that's there. Pure and simple. It's non-judgmental. When we add to that experience, that is not. That's no longer what I'm referring to as mindfulness. So mindfulness is the simple recognition of what's happening. So that's one way to think of mindfulness, and and another way to think of mindfulness is that it's it's that awareness of what's happening but from moment to moment to moment to moment. So, uh, you see, um, and the ability to be with what's happening from moment to moment to moment is another sort of level of mindfulness and another way of understanding mindfulness. And the more we're able to do this, the 
quieter the mind becomes, the more stable the mind becomes. <clears throat> and this is important if you're trying to cultivate a quality that can recognize and be with suffering or be with that type of, um, yes, to be with suffering. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. <clears throat> because <clears throat> what happens when we encounter something that's unpleasant is we immediately turn to look for how to get rid of it, how to antidote it, how to fix it, you see? <clears throat> and in doing that, if our mindfulness isn't clear enough to see that that's what we're doing, you see, we just get lost. And we get lost over and over and over again. We do the same thing over and over and over again without seeing what we're doing. But when mindfulness recognizes suffering, and suffering is so distracting that we can't, we can't maintain mindfulness, the way that we can deal with a situation like that in a very natural way is to meet that with kindness, to meet that with the heart. Now, when I say meet that with kindness, that sounds lovely, right? But it's not so easy. It takes real courage. It takes real strength. It takes a, a real clarity and uh, a clarity of mind and, and a determination to uh, really be friendly and honest. It takes radical honesty. You can't... It sounds very easy, but it's not so easy. It's not so easy to be honest with ourselves at that level. But that's what's required, and that's what, when I say required, that's what will change our experience. That's what the Buddha had to do. He had to face that within himself and um, and see through what was actually going on, which he obviously did. And and I won't comment on the Buddha because I don't know that much about the Buddha. I would love to. <laughs> I would love to have lived <clears throat> around the time of the Buddha and known him, but I live now, so I have to find my own way here. So. <clears throat> So these heart practices of um, especially loving kindness and compassion uh, are a way that we can embrace and hold all of the feelings that arise in the mind, all of the swirl of feelings that arise in the mind uh, with kindness as naturally as you would hold a frightened child, soothing, accepting, knowing, our feelings for what they are instead of judging ourselves for having feelings that are disturbing us. So when we take time to notice and investigate our experience, when we actually take the time to do that, we see that change is natural. Change is absolutely natural. It's intrinsic in all Phenomena. All phenomena arises, abides, and passes away. All experience is subject to change. All phenomena is like that. Every thought that you have is followed by another thought. 
Every sensation that you experience is followed by another sensation. Every emotion that you have, no matter how intense that emotion is, how real that emotion is, how difficult that emotion is, it will abate and pass away at a certain point. Just think of a time in your life when you were absolutely in a rage about something. I see. You just can't hold that fist forever. At a certain point, it, you will relax. Things will change. You see? Now, <clears throat> sometimes people find in that recognizing that they say, okay, I'll just grit my teeth and go through this experience and hopefully come out the other end. I know that I will. But that way of dealing with things is really pretty painful. And it doesn't have to be that way. So when we just take time to notice and investigate our experience and, and we can accept that change is natural and it's intrinsic in phenomena, we can come to experience our bodily feelings and our mental states as being less personal. We don't have to take our every thought as in a personal way, every emotion in a personal way, every pain in a personal way. And, and we see that it's just part of being a human being, that we all share this. It's part of our shared common humanity. You and I and everyone else are in this together. Like it or not, we're all in this together. You and I, all of our neighbors, all of our brothers and sisters across the world are not different from one another in this way. In this way, we're all the same. We all know what it's like to suffer, and we all know what it's like to not want to suffer. You see? If you think about your own experience, at any moment that you experience something that's unpleasant, even the desire to fix it, to, to get away from it, we can see embedded in any moment of suffering is also the natural wish not to suffer to be happy. Both of those things exist at the same time. Do you agree? Yeah, you agree. So, so, we can say, I think, that neither physical feelings or mental states can define us, nor do they belong to us. They're not personal. They're just, it's just part of being a human being. And recognizing this is, um, is a beautiful thing. So, so I'm going to repeat what I, stop, what I opened with here and say everything Everything, everything is subject to change. 
Everything is changing all the time. We can understand that cognitively, but we don't necessarily embrace that so easily on an experiential level. And when we start to experience it on an or, it, uh, or, or recognize it on an experiential level, it can be uh, a little bit upsetting for us. So when we learn to stop and pause and step back and have a look at what's actually going on in our experience, we do catch a glimpse of the bigger picture. There's always space surrounding our experience. And in this space surrounding our experience, we can find a respite, a refuge, and a moment of peace. And when we touch that, we begin to know what that feels like. We begin to know that that's there. We begin to have confidence in our own access to that place. And we begin to see that we can um, meet our experience in a way that's much more friendly, but also much more wholesome. And we can allow ourselves to be with things that are difficult, knowing that we have a capacity to um, just not be overwhelmed or caved in every time we, we uh, find ourselves in that place. And uh, this is... This is what's called, this comes from the knowledge and vision of the way things are as they really are. It, it comes from a recognition. This is a kind of a fancy way of saying it, the knowledge and vision of the way things are. But that's, in fact, what's happening. We, we begin to see that this is what's happening. Now, I want to just digress for a moment and and. and point something out that I think is relevant and I think is useful. And I hope it will be useful for you. So <clears throat> when we encounter things that we feel are difficult or unpleasant and we recoil from those things and we do this over and over and over again <clears throat> and we think that things that are pleasant are good and these, these unpleasant experiences are, are not just difficult, but they're bad. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have these experiences. So that we, we just go into a normal reactive mode where we're trying to get away from unpleasant experiences and only have pleasant experiences. So if we're using mindfulness, what do you, th what do you think we can learn about that when we just discover when we just discover, wow, every time I have an unpleasant experience, my first response or my first reaction is to get away from it as quickly as possible or to make it go away or to distract myself. This is how, sorry, this, I'm asking this question because this is a way that we can begin to see how mindfulness serves 
in the cultivation of these heart qualities. Because if we're locked into that kind of a pattern and we don't see what's going on, we can't really let the, we can't allow compassion to actually come into full flowering. So the situation, the scenario is that you like pleasant things and think pleasant things are good and you don't like unpleasant things and you think unpleasant things are bad. And every time you encounter something that you think is unpleasant, you distract yourself or you can front it in some way or another. So if we looked at that situation with mindfulness, what, what do you think you could notice there? <clears throat> this is not a trick question, and you all know the answer. I guarantee you, <laughs> you all know the answer. <clears throat> Say? We suffer more. You suffer more. Okay, beautiful. That's right. You do. You suffer more when that happens. So you, you, you see, okay, this is causing me to suffer more. But <clears throat> you, you can also recognize in that suffering more that that suffering comes out of aversion to being with what is not pleasant. We don't want to be with it. So we have an aversion to being with it. And that aversion leads to more suffering. But we can also see in that, (coughs) that movement towards trying to get away from it and the, the exacerbation of suffering that we are cultivating this muscle of aversion and without realizing it, we're training ourselves to believe that we do not have the ability or the capacity to deal with things that are challenging or uncomfortable for us. You see? So every time we do that, we reinforce this belief that becomes a mental habit that affects the way that we are in the world. We, we think that we can't, that we don't have the ability to be with whatever is challenging for us, you see? And so we desperately are looking for answers outside of ourselves and, um, you know, we drink too much and we smoke too much and we kick the dog and so on and so forth. And, and this is suffering. And this suffering, as I said a moment ago, I think I did, it's these perceptions and attitudes and habits of mind actually are influenced by greed, aversion, and delusion, by greed, hatred, and delusion. And, and you see, in, to take it apart in that way, you can see how this actually makes a difference in your life. It's not just some theoretical 
um, exercise to entertain yourself, it actually makes a difference in your life. And you say, okay, so now I see that aversion has me suffering more and that I'm building this muscle of aversion and this false belief and assumption that I don't have the capacity to be with things that challenge me, you see? But so mindfulness sees all that, but says, oh, well, now what do I do? Okay, well, this is where, <clears throat> where these heart qualities can really make a difference because rather than falling into a state of hopelessness or, or helplessness or, or some other state, you know, you can, you can meet the truth of that situation with a kind heart like a friend would. See? So sometimes it's just a matter of saying, of, if you can name it, it's great. You can say, wow, this really hurts. This, this really hurts. And, and I don't know what to do about it. This, this you see? <clears throat> just the recognition and the honesty about that is an act of self-kindness. That is an act of self-compassion. And that is, you see, if you were holding a a child that was frightened or sick, you you see, what would you do for the child? You wouldn't say, well, now you know what it is, stop being frightened. You know, the child is frightened. You, You treat the child with tenderness, with kindness. You, treat, you can learn to meet yourself in that way. You can learn, even if you're still suffering, you know, and, and I want to be clear that compassion, the, to, to, um, to cultivate compassion or to meet compassion, even in, in a situation like the one that I, I'm describing to you, doesn't mean the immediate relief and resolution of this feeling of suffering that you're having. What, what happens is that by seeing the truth of what the situation is or what the circumstances of the situation are, by actually seeing the truth of it, it changes your relationship to it. So rather than being in resistance and suffering more, you see, you actually see the truth of it. And so, so seeing that is the bridge for compassion to arise. You see, we, it's not that compassion will just magically make your suffering go away. It will, it will allow you to enter this space where you can find refuge and peace. And, and that can be cultivated in any moment of experience, whether you're stuck at the red light or the roof is leaking or you just had your house burned down because you lived in Santa Rosa, you see. So you can take the whole range of things. So there's always space surrounding experience, and in this space we 
discover a place of peace. So the changing nature of life, of our lives, of our aging, the loss of our remembered physical or mental capacities, or simply the sense of being off balance because we're on the shifting sands of day-to-day life, the conditions in life. Any of these conditions, any one of these conditions, can be a wake-up call. It's like a stirring that awakens us from the dream of our experience, which is tainted by greed, aversion, and delusion. And that wake-up call is, in fact, reality. So just a small taste of deeper understanding, of knowing and seeing things as they are, rather than as we want them to be or wish them to be, it, it awakens, it stirs the heart and gives us a sense, in many cases, a sense of urgency to, to do something, to practice there's a Pali word for this, this sense of urgency. It's called samvega. I love this word. So, <clears throat> so you all may have at some point felt this stirring and, and felt moved to practice, felt moved to try to have a deeper understanding of what's going on in your life. And... One of the ways that we can respond to this is to investigate and use the actual process of change, the actual process of impermanence. And um, we, we can simply investigate the changing nature of our own experience uh, to follow a path of practice. And when we do, or this path of practice, and when we do, we change, we grow. We become stronger, we become more resilient, we become less vulnerable to falling into the illusion of selfing and suffering. And this actually takes us beyond the, just a, a resignation of coping with things, of gritting our teeth and saying, okay, I'll get through this, this is going to change. This actually puts you in touch with yourself in a new way. It makes us feel present. It makes us feel um, um, there for ourselves. You see, every time we, we um, react in a way that we actually lose connection with this place in ourselves, this is a moment of, of abandonment in a way. You know, so one of the kindest things you can say to yourself when you make a mistake is just to acknowledge the mistake and feel into how that sort of disoriented you temporarily, knocked you off balance. And you can say to yourself, I'm, I'm sorry, I, this was a mistake. <laughs> I won't abandon you again. I'll do my best not to abandon you. You, see, you can talk to yourself in that way. So as we do this, we, we see that um, there's a quality of faith that develops in us, uh, a quality of determination might 
begin to show up. And the most beautiful thing is that this faith actually uh, turns into, in, in my experience, a, a quality that's a little bit deeper. It's a quality of trust. You begin to feel like you can trust yourself. You see, it grows in us as we come closer and closer to the realization of freedom, which is found in that space of peace. So we can call freedom the end of suffering. We can call it release. We can call it any wonderful, magnificent thing that we want to. But um, it takes... Um, some, you know, act of intentional um, looking, investigating, um, uh, coupled with, with enormous honesty and enormous kindness, and the recognition that as human beings, we're doing the best that we can do. Sometimes we nail it, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we disappoint other people and other people disappoint us. This is just what it's like to be a human being. If you do your best, it's good enough. That's one of the kindest things one of my teachers said. Do your best, it's good enough. It's good enough. You're a human being. We're all in this together. Take heart. So... So those are some of my thoughts this morning. And we have a few minutes. If you have any questions. Your hand went first and your hand went second. Um, <clears throat> thanks for the talk. Uh, I just had a couple questions. So um, first of all, when you talked about I, I liked your definitions of mindfulness. I was just wondering when you talked about it being non-judgmental, mm-hmm. is that sort of like non-evaluative? So obviously it wouldn't be judgmental in a negative way, but also not in a positive way? No. <coughs> non-judgmental <coughs> does <coughs> Excuse me. It's not that we're not discerning, that we're not seeing what's happening. It's that we're not judging it good and bad necessarily, you see. Um, because that's where, at least, let's think about it in your own experience. This is always how to deal with it. it in, I've been practicing for a long time, and it's just theoretical cognitive unless you can relate it to yourself. So in your own experience, when you have something happen, and you judge yourself as, you know, sometimes people will talk to themselves and say, how could you be so stupid to do this? Or how could you have said that? Or that's what we mean by judgmental. It's when you're, um, when you're looking at the reflection that the mirror is coming back and saying, wow, you did not get enough sleep. You look like hell this morning. That's what we mean by judgmental. And then, um, as far as, like, suffering is concerned, when is there, like, a wisdom to know, like, hey, like, maybe I should just go to the store and buy myself some chocolate ice cream as opposed to (laughs) settling for vanilla? 
Yeah, that that uh, that comes with practice. So there's a difference between self-indulgence and self-care. So one of the ways that you can do it, I, you know, it's, bit, it's case by case, obviously. Yeah. But one of the ways that you can do it is there are certain kinds of, of ways that we t- would look for happiness that would fall more into kind of a hedonic pursuit. Like, I, I really want the chocolate ice cream. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that chocolate ice cream is inappropriate sometimes, but it's like, if I don't get that chocolate ice cream, my whole night is going to be ruined because I've been planning chocolate ice cream all day. That, and so you get the chocolate ice cream, and that's great, but that happiness that you thought doesn't last, that you, you thought you couldn't live without, doesn't last. So there are other qualities that are called eudaimonic qualities that are qualities of the heart. That, and the way that you can think about this is that these are sustainable qualities. You see? So if you were cultivating a quality of kindness or a quality of compassion or a quality of restraint even, you see, let's say... We don't like to talk about restraint, but sometimes it's appropriate. And so you notice that you want the chocolate ice cream, you see? And this is a great example. You notice that you want the... Or a great question. You notice that you want the chocolate ice cream, right? You can't live without the chocolate ice cream, right? So this is a moment where... Things are, you're meeting something that, that's unpleasant for you, which is not that you don't have the chocolate ice cream, but that the wanting of the chocolate ice cream. That's the problem, you see? So then every time you have this want, if you give in to this want, you see, you're cultivating this idea that you don't have the capacity to control yourself or to, to meet yourself that way. So if you were to cultivate a quality of restraint that you could do if you were using mindfulness, I mean, you could do it in a number of ways, but in this situation, if you were seeing what was happening and you could use mindfulness, then you could intentionally cultivate restraint and, you know, you could get your your, um, chocolate ice cream the next day and you would have built the muscle of something that is sustainable because there will be more situations than tonight's chocolate ice cream where you will either be taken down the rabbit hole or be able to be more in control of the situation. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds like that marshmallow test, like yes. probe of maturity and whatnot. Right. Yeah, that's right. So it sounds like there are phenomena, like you talked about the eudaimonic qualities. They're something that's more sustainable, but it's also something that's conditioned. And like you mentioned, it's not something that, it's something that takes practice to cultivate. Right. But it's very natural. It's a very natural quality. It's sort of like if you, if you, you could also look at that situation where 
You want something and you don't have it, you see? And you're stuck in this feeling of wanting it and not having it. And you could meet that as a moment of self-compassion. The recognition of these opposites happening at the same time. That doesn't give you what you want, but you're, you meet it with kindness. You hold it with kindness. That's what compassion is. Make a shorter note, but um, you, uh, when you kept using the words pleasant and unpleasant, um, mm-hmm. I don't know why I didn't think of this far. I immediately flashed back to this uh, old song by Carol King called Pleasant Valley Sunday, and she's living in this pleasant suburb, but then she says it's all status symbol land, and it's just people trying to prove that they're... Um, you know, belong to the in-group, and it's it's not serving any other function. So she doesn't like living in Pleasant Valley. <laughs> Good for her. <laughs> um, the song was actually recorded by the Monkees, but it's written by Carol King. I see. Uh, <laughs> thank. So just the thought that bubbled into my head while you're talking. Okay, great, <laughs> Carol King. All right. Anyone else? Okay, you get the last word. Keep thinking of I forget who said it. Say it. It, it might have been Matthew Brensilver. I just was it, that he said somebody summarized it as no preferences, no problems. That's right. The one thing that bothers me though is that I keep thinking I have to dampen down the preference. I have to go a little numb to not have the preferences. Yeah. So that okay? No, no, no. That's that's great. That's that. It's an Ajahn Sona quote. Um, and uh, uh, if you dampen down to not have the preferences, so let's use mindfulness again. What what's happening? You're you're striving. You're being stressful. You're you're in fact you're rejecting the truth of your experience. You see, you have these preferences. And it's, it's counterintuitive in a way, because, like, what are you supposed to do with them? You have them, and you see. So in order to, to, to learn to have restraint, in order, there is some discomfort that comes with it. It's just part of it. But um, if you can watch what's happening, and you, you, you don't, like... <sighs> Um, like jump on on your preferences and 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 pin them to the floor, crush them, because um, because that's an act of rejection. Could be an act, it's an act of resistance, and that resistance itself is the problem. Then then you then you turn your attention away from what you actually are trying to accomplish and or have your preference and look at the resistance itself. Make the resistance itself the subject. And if you can't, if it's so strong that there's nothing you can do about it, then if you meet that with honesty, wow, I can't, you know, this hurts and I don't know what to do about it. 
that kind of radical, transparent honesty is an act of self-kindness. See? That's, that's true self-kindness. That's self-compassion. And every time you meet yourself that way and recognize it as a moment of self-compassion, this is how you begin to cultivate this quality in yourself. Okay? So don't, don't, don't fight with your experience. If you fight with your experience, you're in a, a losing battle because we fight with, most people fight with their experience. This gritting the teeth and waiting for it to, that's a little bit like what you're describing. It's like I have to like crush my preferences. Yeah, and I have to blank out. I kind of mm. like have, it's so painful and confusing, confusing. And the preference is so strong that I just feel like I have to blank, blank them out. Right. And b- to become mindful. Like, but I'm not becoming mindful. It's not, no. it's like a, a shut down. Like, I just got to wall them off. Yeah. And and my, it, but know. see, mindfulness will, with mindfulness, and, and this is where kindness, like mindfulness is wonderful, but for most mere mortals, when you're in a situation that is so you know, and I'm not sure how some of the other of my colleagues here would would agree with me, but for my own from my own practice, sometimes things are just too much to deal with, and I and the way that I've learned to do it to to handle things is through compassion, through the heart. You see. Because I think that that's what you're talking about, qualities of suffering, yeah. Treat yourself like you would treat a frightened child or an injured or a sick child, you see? You, want, you, you don't say, <clears throat> don't be frightened, don't be frightened. You know, the child is frightened. You, you comfort the child, you're tender. You do whatever you do. I, I don't know, fill in the blank, but you certainly don't, you don't, you know, throw the child down and pin him to the floor and say, you have nothing to be afraid of. This is not going to work. Okay? So thank you all very much. And if, and we're a little bit over, and if anyone wants to ask any other questions, I'll... Stick around for a few minutes.